Well, I want to welcome you tonight. This is part seven of secret societies, uh, of what in the world's going on. We're going to talk about secret societies and the Luciferian agenda. Let's go ahead and pray uh, to start with tonight, and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for just for your love for us. Thank you that uh, because of your great love, you opened up a new and living way for us that allows us to come boldly into the throne room in heaven, find peace, and uh, lay our burdens down at your feet. Thank you that anybody who in simple faith places their trust in your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, they can have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And so, Lord, thank you for our relationship with you. Thank you for your love for us. Uh, and Father, I pray that as we continue to study these um, sometimes difficult uh, topics and yet necessary topics in the age in which we live, I pray that you would just give us peace and comfort and remind us uh, of your uh, sovereignty and of your plan of the ages. And Lord, we do pray if there's anybody listening or watching uh, tonight uh, or at any point after this uh, video is uh, posted in the days and weeks to come that does not know you, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them of their sin and their need for a Savior, and that in simple childlike faith, they would come to know you. So, Lord, we give you this time together tonight. ask you to use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's great to be back. Um, appreciate your flexibility last week as we did not meet in this regular Wednesday night series, but we are going to resume tonight. What in the world is going on? And I feel like we need to be asking that question daily, not weekly, because things are happening so fast and things are just really seem to be uh, coming apart at the seams. But uh, thankfully, we know uh, who's holding it all together and we don't have to worry. But uh, really looking forward to this. I've never actually done a dedicated presentation on secret societies. Uh, I've talked about them at length in various uh, series, like my uh, Spirit of the Antichrist series. Um, that we've talked a lot about from last fall. We did touch on that in one of those videos, but I've never really dedicated an entire uh, time of research to this. So I've spent as much downtime as I had over the last week. As you know, we were at the Alaska Bible Conference there in Wasilla, and then also at Alaska Bible College speaking on Monday, and had a wonderful time. If you have not had the chance yet, you can go watch those videos or listen to the audio on, on your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Not By Works Ministries. Uh, but it was a wonderful time, fruitful ministry, um, definitely, you know, uh, taxing physically and spiritually and emotionally, but really met some great people, really appreciative uh, to the good folks at Pioneer Baptist. Wouldn't be surprised if some of them are watching this uh, tonight or uh, down the road. So thank you folks there in, in Wasilla again. But great to be back. And uh, during all of my downtime, I really... Uh, kind of put the finishing pieces on this uh, session and due to the craziness of the schedule I actually was you know up until about three hours ago kind of still tweaking it and that always makes me a little nervous because inevitably when I'm making last minute adjustments like that I end up finding typos or things on the slides but you're gracious and so if that happens I'm sure uh, we can uh, deal with it but uh, but we want to talk about this uh, subject uh, because uh, as we've said the, the whole premise of this uh, underlying series that we started with back in part one was the great satanic reset. And we talked about the cosmic struggle between God and Satan and how Satan's been trying to take over the world from the beginning of time, really, since he got kicked out of heaven. And uh, he is conspiring with his demons and with human beings 
that are part of the Luciferian agenda to try to, to, to accomplish that goal. And right now, we talked about how Klaus Schwab, we're going to say a bit more about him in a bit, uh, and the World Economic Forum are in the driver's seat. Doesn't mean he's the Antichrist or the candidate for the Antichrist, but uh, certainly he's uh, a key figure right now in this agenda. And then in part two, we talked about COVID-19 and the depopulation agenda of the Satanists and of Satan's uh, Luciferian agenda. And we segued from that into part three and got into the gene editing bioinjections. And that is still something that's very relevant to this day and becoming more relevant day by day. So if you've not watched part three, I encourage you to go back and watch that one at least. And then part four, we looked at the Luciferian timeline and Agenda 2030 and kind of how, according to their plans anyway, they're planning to roll things out. Now, we know God is sovereign, and if he's not ready to enter the end game, then he's going to thwart their plans like he's done many centuries uh, for many centuries now. Uh, but at some point, we know the biblical narrative is that Satan will succeed in taking over the world just prior to when uh, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ comes back and takes the throne. Uh, but we don't know the exact uh, timetable from God's perspective, only he knows that. But the Luciferians have certainly telegraphed their timetable, and they are hard at work trying to make it happen in the very near future, according to their own literature. And we talked about that in part four. Then part five, we looked at preparedness tips. What can we do to be uh, prepared? And then in our last session, we asked the question, uh, it was kind of a rhetorical question because I think we all knew the answer. Can we trust the government? And we uh, demonstrated unequivocally that uh, absolutely we cannot, although we did talk about how there are good uh, Christian God-fearing men and women who have uh, followed the call to serve uh, our country in various ways. Not every single person involved in government at every level is somehow evil or has a uh, nefarious agenda. Uh, but by and large, as a whole, the people that are pulling the strings, it's not a good situation. So um, I want to remind you to please subscribe to the Not By Works newsletter and our podcast so you'll keep up with uh, all the different audio that we post four or five times uh, a week. And then uh, I want to remind you too to save questions for the end and we'll do a Q&A at the very end. So uh, our verse that we keep coming back to again and again at the beginning of each of these sessions is from Proverbs 22.3. You see a paraphrase of that on the screen. A prudent man foresees the difficulties ahead and prepares for them, whereas the simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. So we have talked very much about how preparedness is a biblical concept. It, does not, it is not mutually exclusive with faith. While trusting God, we also want to do the things that God calls on us to do to be prepared for whatever may be coming down the pike. We know that our, devil, our, our adversary, the devil, is walking around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, so we want to be vigilant. And uh, we want to uh, be sober and serious and, and aware and paying attention. We also remind, uh, always remind you that uh, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Um, so we're never to be scared, but we are to be prepared. Uh, Jesus told the disciples in the upper room that in the world we will have tribulation. But we should be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. So we never want to forget that principle of who wins in the end. So to start with tonight, I think I've got four broad points in the, in the presentation tonight. We want to uh, begin looking at this from the spiritual warfare aspect and say, what does the Bible say about secrets? You know, if you stop and think about it, in war, the enemy always hides his position. Tell me if this is right, Randy. 
He hides his communications. He hides his movements. He hides his supplies, his weapons, his arsenals. He hides everything. That's how wars work. You know, what kind of a, it wouldn't be very long a war or very uh, successful war if you, you know, telegraphed all of your, you know, position and communications and plans and movements and supplies uh, to the enemy, right? That's the way war works. Well, we, ne we must never forget that there is a war raging, and it's a spiritual battle. It's a battle that's taking place in the unseen realm, in the heavenlies. And so secrecy is a key part of Satan's agenda. Um, and we can go all the way back to Genesis 3 when this battle began, when we read that the serpent, Satan, was more cunning than any beast of the field when he approached uh, Adam and Eve. And I talked about this uh, passage. I kind of went through verse by verse, Genesis 3, 1 through 5, on Sunday morning in part 6 of that Alaska Bible Conference, the final part of the six-part uh, conference. Um, but that word uh, translated cunning there, it's sometimes translated crafty in our English Bibles, uh, and it's the word arum. In Hebrew, we would, we would actually say achrum would be the Hebrew pronunciation, and it means cunning, crafty, shrewd. Uh, it's used 11 times in the Old Testament Hebrew text. Uh, and by the way, it's sometimes translated prudent. It's not always a negative context. There could be some shrewdness in a non-sinful perspective. In fact, uh, uh, one of the purposes of the Bible, according to Proverbs 1, is to make believers ahrum, shrewd, wise, is sometimes translated that way. But in the context of Genesis 3.1, it has a very negative connotation that said that the serpent, Satan, was doing things surreptitiously, secretly. He didn't come announcing to Adam and Eve, hey, come with me, let's go destroy the world, and let's cause you to die, and let's cause you to no longer have a connection to our Creator. Let's separate you from our Creator. Won't that be great? Come on, let's go. No, he was cunning. He had a secret plan at play. And then you come to the New Testament and remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, same idea, obviously a different word, uh, you know, written, let's see, Genesis was written 1446 B.C., where are we? 2 Corinthians roughly 57, 58 A.D., so we're talking 1,500 years later, and in the different language, Greek was the language of uh, the Roman Empire at that time. So, but it's the same idea, and he's actually referring back to that passage and that event that we just uh, looked at. And he says, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So there's a contrast going on there between the devil's craftiness and the simplicity of Christ. That word simplicity is hoplotes. It means frankness, sincerity. In other words, Satan was not sincere or frank or honest. He was hiding something. But with Christ, he is the truth. He is the embodiment of truth. He said, I am the truth. So we see, going all the way back to the Old Testament law, that secrecy is a tool of the devil. In fact, the, the law uh, prohibits creating any type of idol and then setting it up in secret and telling people, hey, come over here behind this bush. Let's go, let's go you know, worship this 
idol. Uh, we saw it going back to the first century at the birth of Christ when Herod, not long before he died, uh, was trying to kill the Christ child to try to once again, at Satan's behest, put a stop to God's uh, plan of redemption and God's plan to restore and make all things new once again in his creation. And so he called the wise men secretly, the Magi. Remember that? And, uh, and he tried to kind of fake it a little bit and say, you know, hey, what... Uh, what time did that star appear? Because uh, we want to go worship him too. Well, that's not what Herod wanted to do at all. He, he wanted to kill him. But again, it was done in secret. There are a lot of different words in the Greek New Testament that are, are synonyms for secrecy or secrets, the noun. Uh, this one is the word uh, lothra, and it literally means behind the back or without the knowledge of. This one's only used four times in the New Testament, but one of those is there in Matthew when Herod had secretly called the wise men. We see it again in Acts 16 after Paul had been imprisoned and then, uh, you know, Paul, when they were going to let him go and kind of take him out the back way because the, the crowds were really on Paul's side and it was causing quite the stir and the leaders were feeling like they were losing their grip. And so they said, well, let's just get rid of this guy. Let's just steal him away out of town, out back, and maybe the problems will go away. And so the, Paul said to them, you know, they've beaten us openly as uncondemned Romans and have thrown us into prison, and now they want to put us out secretly? <laughs> no way. Let them come themselves and uh, get us out. Jesus, when he was sending out the 12, he said, therefore do not fear them, the, the leaders and those who would treat them spitefully, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed. Nothing hidden that will not be known. In the context, you know, Jesus had just said, it's, it is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they had called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? In other words, you know, they were calling Jesus and his works Beelzebub, the devil, and basically Jesus turned it back on them and said, well, if the leaders, Satan, then you as Jewish leaders, scribes, Pharisees, said, you must be from Beelzebub uh, too. And, then, he, and then, then, as if to say, and someday everybody will know it, he says in the very next verse, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed. Uh, in Acts chapter 6, uh, this is a different word for secretly, hupabalo, and it's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. Uh, it, uh, it means literally, if you were to translate it woodenly, it's a compound word, hupabalo, it means to lay under. Um, but this is talking about Stephen, uh, and just before they stoned him to death, th then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know Stephen was no such man. He was a man full of the Spirit. Uh, he never would say such a thing. So that's why they had to secretly plot and plan and get people to lie on his bed. That's the way sin works. It's done secretly. You know, that's why all of our parents used to say, you know, nothing good happens after midnight or nothing good happens after dark. Why? Because people don't generally go out in broad daylight and commit crimes right there for everybody to see. Now, as we look at the, the, the uh, degenerative nature of depravity and how bad things have gotten worse and worse and worse, 
one of the many signs of the times that we are probably getting closer and closer to the end times is that that is happening. Now it's just blatant. It's just in your face. There is no shame. It's the death of shame is what we're seeing. But in general, the principle has held true since time began that you know it's under cover of darkness and secrecy that these types of evil things are done. Paul, in his first letter that he wrote, rebuked the Christians in southern Galatia in that region where he and Barnabas had evangelized and cities like Lystra and Derbe and Iconium. And uh, when he got back to Antioch and he was giving a report to the church, he had quickly heard that already, and he hadn't even been gone but a short time, and already uh, people were secretly coming in to the churches there, the newfound churches, and, you know, notice they came in by stealth to spy out our liberty that we have in Christ, and they were placing burdens of legalism upon those new believers. We call those Judaizers is what they were. And so notice how they came in secretly. They didn't come in and announce to these new converts, hey, we're here to criticize Paul, this guy who you just heard preach the good news and you believe the gospel because of him. Now they probably, and again, we don't have the exact record of what they said, but based on Galatians 2.4, it would follow that they probably came in and said, hey guys, wasn't that great? Paul was great. Isn't he a great guy? Man, I love Paul. Paul's wonderful. And, and he had some really great things to say, but come over here and let me tell you the rest of the story. Let me add a few little things to, no offense to Paul, I mean, he's a great guy, but let me tell you, if you really want to go to heaven, you've also got to be circumcised and you've got to keep the law and you've got to dot your I's and cross your T's. So again, it was this stealthy, secretive, frankly deceptive method. Peter addresses the same thing to some false teachers in uh, chapter 2. I'm going to be speaking on 2 Peter chapter 2 at a conference in Duluth in October, and I'm really looking forward to diving into that passage. I've come back to it again and again for different proof texts in different theological circles, but I've never taught through that chapter. It's a, a conference where they, assign, they do one book for the whole conference, and they assign the keynote speakers a different chapter, and this is my chapter. But I was thinking about this first, there, where Peter says, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in false and destructive heresies. So you see this contrast throughout Scripture between truth, the light, openness, and deception, darkness, secrecy. It's a contrast. It's a contrast in the game plan in this cosmic struggle. John said, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. Right? In other words, you can't be sinning and claiming to be in right fellowship with the Lord at the same time. Now, our positional righteousness in Christ never changes. That comes by justification, by faith. Once we trust in Christ, we are declared righteous. We are positionally in Christ henceforth and forevermore. We're part of the family of God. But our practice can ebb and flow as we yield to the flesh instead of the spirit, as we walk by sight and not by faith, and so forth. And so what John is saying throughout his first epistle there, it's all about fellowship. It's basically you can't be living in sin and claiming to be in fellowship with the Lord at the same time because there's no sin, no darkness in Christ. And so he goes on to, or in Ephesians, Paul puts it this way, for once you were in darkness positionally, but now you're light of the world. Walk as children of the light. Now, if becoming 
if coming out of darkness into light by faith alone in Christ alone guaranteed that we would always walk as children of the light, Paul wouldn't have to command us here to walk as children of the light. See, it's possible to be uh, in the light, positionally, in Christ, born again, and yet venturing out into the darkness. And that's what happens whenever sins get, uh, whenever Christians sin and get away from the Lord. But he goes on, see that you, at the end of this section, see that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And right there in the middle of this verse, you see I put an ellipsis there, but if you go back and look at verses 11 and 12, he says something similar to John. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Again, this is another different word uh, for secret, but they're all synonyms. And so Jesus said in Matthew 12, Brood of vipers, speaking to the Pharisees, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then he goes on to add, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. By the way, this is, if you go back and look at the whole context, he's talking about fruit. When he says, by their fruits you shall know them. So you need to understand that the, that famous passage, which he also uses in Matthew 7, is not about behavior. You don't determine someone's uh, condition as far as being saved or not by their behavior because unbelievers can act moral and believers can walk in the darkness and act sinful. The fruit that he's talking about very clearly here is their, what they say. So you listen to someone long enough and hear their testimony and hear the way they talk about the Lord, you can learn, you can discern whether or not they know the Lord. And that's certainly true of Satan's uh, Luciferian co-conspirators. But notice what he says at the end of this after talking about, by their fruit you shall know them. I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. So someday, these uh, Luciferian co-conspirators that are working at Satan's behest to try to usher in a one-world government, a satanically-led one-world government, they'll have to give an account. And then all of these secret plans that were formulated in smoke-filled rooms, or all of these satanic rituals where they were sacrificing, in some case, literal human beings, we're going to talk about that, and drinking blood, all of those things that nobody, most people have no idea about, even though the Bible talks about it, uh, they have no idea all of that's going to come to light at the great white throne judgment. So that's what the Bible has to say. And with that kind of background, and we could talk a lot more about that, but I just wanted to lay a foundation about why secret societies and knowing a little bit about them are important and how they fit into Satan's plan to take over uh, the world. So number two then is what is a secret society? What is a secret society? You know, a lot of times people will say when they've heard me talk about this in, in part in, in other series like Globalism, Luciferianism, the New World Order, or Spirit of the Antichrist, or Illuminating the New World Order, they'll say, well, if it's a secret society, how, how come everybody knows about it? They're not understanding what a secret society is, okay? By secret society, we do not mean that nobody knows about them. Quite the contrary, we know all about them, but we don't know what they're doing. A secret society is an organized group whose membership, for example, in some cases, we have no idea who their members are. 
For example, the Bilderberg Group, which we're going to talk about as one example, uh, it wasn't until a couple decades ago that one of their uh, attendance lists was leaked out by a caterer that was part of this massive event, and then it, and then we began to get an idea of who was there. But it, but their design is that you don't know their membership. In other cases, it's their teachings. In fact, in most cases, it's their teachings. A lot of cases, it's their purpose that's kept secret. It's many cases, like with Freemasonry, it's their proceedings that are kept secret. Or it could be all of them, all of the above. But it's not that they exist that's the big secret. The big secret is what they're doing, what they hope to accomplish, and who they're doing it for. That's what we mean by a secret society. Fundamentally, secret societies are conspiracies. They're a group of people, as we kind of looked at in that passage with Paul in Acts, conspiring together. Anytime you get two or more people working together to commit a crime or something evil, that's a conspiracy. That's the textbook definition of a conspiracy. And fundamentally, that's what secret societies are. We've discussed the Lucifer conspiracy, obviously, quite a bit in this What in the World is Going On series. But Satan, as the prince of darkness, loves secrecy. And these secret societies, as we shall see, all serve a purpose in one way or another to advance his agenda. So remember the conspiracy, as we, and I've shown this many times, it's a Luciferian conspiracy involving Satan, his demons, and human beings, all working together to bring about a one-world system where people will worship the Antichrist instead of worshiping the one true God. And, God. and conspiracies, as I've mentioned previously, are as old as time itself. Uh, and they go all the way back to the original conspiracy when Satan got a hold of some of the angels, one-third of them to be exact, and said, let's go take over heaven. And that didn't end too well for them. But he's a slow learner, so then he just broadened the conspiracy and got, over time, some human beings uh, to be involved in this uh, as well. So what are the membership requirements of secret societies? Well, this is really interesting. Uh, secret societies always have some type of specific initiation rituals or oaths of secrecy. In fact, many secret societies, including some of the ones we're going to talk about, uh, have as their initiation requirement the task of killing somebody. Remember, Jesus said Satan is a murderer from the beginning. He loves death. Those who hate God love death. He brought death into the world. Uh, he, he lied to Eve, saying you'll not surely die if you eat of this tree, and of course that's exactly what happened, but to him that was a, that was a victory. It's acts all 100% all opposite. Remember, Satanists view Lucifer as the protagonist and God as the antagonist in the Garden of Eden account. Uh, but uh, many secret societies have among their initiation rituals the requirement to kill somebody. And by the way, the Italian mafia, and the Sicilian mafia for that matter, both have their roots in secret societies. And they function just like one today. I mean, if you want to become a made man, guess what you have to do? You have to kill somebody. If you want to be part of the mafioso, you've got to, uh, you know, perform that ritual. Um, and uh, by the way, they in in the mafia, they would require you to kill somebody, then cut off the victim's trigger finger if he was to hold, be holding a gun, and rub the blood on a, a Catholic saint card that has pictures and stuff of the different saints and swear an oath of blind allegiance to kill whomever the mafia tells you to kill even if it's your own brother that's the way the mafia works uh, but they, they they love death and so a lot of these secret societies uh, will use all kinds of secret methods to bring about death this is a little bit off the subject but I 
might as well mention it here while I'm thinking about it, but a lot of the deaths that you see, particularly in sort of geopolitical environments and so forth, are not what we're told they are. Many times it's a murder, and they pass it off as a uh, suicide in many cases, or plane crash, that's another favorite one, or a heart attack. You know, the CIA's on record, this was discussed in the church committee hearings back in the 70s, creating a so-called heart attack, I think they called it a heart attack dart or a heart attack gun. Anyway, it was a little uh, uh, piece of uh, ice, a projectile made out of ice that you could project into someone without them even knowing it. They'd be walking down the, the path in the park or whatever, and they feel felt like maybe a bee sting or a mosquito bite or something within seconds they're having a heart attack and because it was made out of ice unless they specifically search for you know the you know the the whatever the agent was that caused uh, you know the heart attack they're not going to find it they're not going to find it and that's you know we've seen that art often imitates life in a lot of the spy movies and stuff and the Jason Bourne movies will play on that uh, but it's common common knowledge uh, and again it was under oath in the church committee hearings but they also have techniques like they'll use virilium put it on a cotton swab and you know use it on unbeknownst uh, unbeknownst to the victim again it's all secrecy uh, and when they're checking for something in your nose they put a little bit of virilium in there and it causes cancer and we've seen this uh, again and again a lot of people think Jack Ruby that's what happened to him Remember after the the uh, after he killed uh, Oswald in that scuffle, of course he was imprisoned or put in jail, and then they had a doctor come in to examine and make sure he's okay. Well, then he dies of cancer not long after that. Uh, so anyway, they love death, and and that's often part of the initiation ritual. Another thing is that in secret societies there are always levels of membership attained through additional rituals. So they have you know, your base level, and then the higher up you go, the more knowledge you are given of how this thing really works until at the upper echelons you're called an adept or an initiate or an uh, elect, sometimes they call them that, uh, and you kind of understand the, the whole goal. So the purpose of secret societies is pretty clear to exert hidden influence, exert hidden power to basically rule from the shadows, there's not one secret society that is kind of pulling the strings. Secret societies are a tool that the conspiracy uses to accomplish different things that they need to accomplish in different parts of the world and in different times. Uh, I'm going to come back to this at the very end tonight and, and kind of show you how secret societies fit into the Luciferian conspiracy. And I've shown you that chart before. But we need to always be reminded that the Luciferian conspiracy is not monolithic. Satan is not omniscient or omnipotent. He can't just snap his fingers and make things happen. So it's often messy. It's often you know, contradictory. There's infighting and problems. And, and that's the reason they've not been successful that, thus far from a human perspective. Obviously from God's perspective, it's because God's timetable is what ultimately rules the day. Uh, but you'll see that in different ways, especially in the secret societies that have come about in the last 200 years or so, they all have their fingers in some piece of the puzzle. And it's often, there's often overlap 
and uh, you know they'll but they're accomplishing a goal and depending on what they're trying to accomplish in that moment they'll call on a particular secret society to uh, to do that um, so I mentioned the word adepts that's from the Latin word adeptus meaning obtained or attained and so when you get to an inner circle or sort of a highest level then uh, you're part of you're an adept you're part of the top tier and at that level in most cases you know this is a luciferian conspiracy at that point you begin to understand who's really calling the shots in some cases you may even yourself talk to satan if they allow you into that inner uh, inner sanctum but when you get to that level then they use all kinds of secret symbols and handshakes and passwords and images and things uh, to communicate i'm going to show you some of these uh, when we get to our first secret society that I want to just touch on uh, tonight. Uh, but they communicate in secrecy. Uh, I was listening to an interview of a guy who uh, was uh, familiar with one particular secret society that he had come out of, and he talked about, this was very recent, and he talked about how uh, they, rather than, you know, you can't communicate electronically, right, because that's all tracked and traced and easy to see your fing digital fingerprints and so forth. But rather than send an email, what they would do is draft an email and then either delete it without ever sending it or just save it in their drafts folder. And then someone else in any other part of the world that has their credentials for being able to set up their email account would go in and set up that email account with whatever email provider they had and then lo and behold they look in the deleted items folder there's this message now that's still you know any good uh, forensic technologist can could find that but at least it's not something that's transversing the world wide web and that other people could intercept so that's just one example they also use all kind of common ciphers i bet randy knows a lot of, about this kind of stuff and um, but you know they use uh, Masonic cipher is one that one type that uses different kinds of symbols. Uh, they use the Atbash cipher, which is reverse alphabet. Uh, basically, you know A becomes Z. It's like if you if you wrote A B C all the way to Z on one line, and then you went right below it and wrote the same thing A to Z underneath it going backwards, and then the corresponding letter is the real letter. That's called an Atbash cipher. Very common one, uh, and you see this a lot in spy movies, is the book cipher, where you have an agreement with whoever you're trying to co-conspire with and communicate with that you're going to use a particular book or document or journal or something, and you never talk about it, it's never written down, it's whatever, you just know what that book is, like uh, A Tale of Two Cities, for example, or whatever. And then you send, uh, if you want to communicate, you send words in three groups of letters. So you might say 13, 7, you know, 4. Well, that means on the 13th page, 7th line from the top, 4th word in. That's the first word of the message. And, then, and of course, it takes a lot, but that's the way they commute and unless you communicate. And unless you know, which they keep that information up here, it's never documented here, what the source book is, you could never break the code, although you probably could these days with digital books and stuff. You could write an algorithm to try to figure it out. Um, and then a, a common simple one that you'll see even in child's uh, magic kits and things like that is called the shift cipher, sometimes called the Caesars cipher, where each letter of the alphabet is replaced by a letter, a fixed number of positions down. 
So you say, you pick a number, say five, and when you're writing out your words, to write an A, you would write B, C, D, E, F would become an A, and each letter changes to the letter five down from it. So there's all kinds of secret handshakes and secret symbols and passwords and things that, that, they, that they like to use, and it's uh, one thing that they use it for, as we move in now to part three, noteworthy secret societies, is to identify each other, especially when it comes to Freemasonry. Uh, you know, that's a huge secret society, and they have all kinds of oaths that they take, and, um, and if they want to identify if someone else is in this group, they can use a symbol, and if it's reciprocated, then they know who they're dealing with, right? And only the adepts will know that symbol. It's kind of like in the first century during the Roman persecution when Christians would use the fish symbol, and I'm sure everybody's familiar with that. Uh, it's ichthus is the Greek word for fish, and the reason they chose that is because it was an acronym which stood for Iesus, which is the first letter of ichthus, stands for Jesus, Christos, Theos, Huios, Sabaton, Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. And if you take the first letter of each of those five words, it spells ichthus, which is a fish. And so they would, uh, if they were coming across other people and they wanted to know if they're part of the way, if they're born-again Christians, they would take a stick or their foot and in the sand they would draw kind of a half circle. And if the other person was in on it and understood, they would then complete the circle below it by making basically what looks like a fish or an ichthus. And this was very important. A lot of people, especially 2,000 years later with the way the church has evolved and especially in Western American culture where you know, our whole premise is to try to get people to come to church, right? We have membership drives, we have, you know, invitations and marketing, and we're trying to get people to come on Sunday mornings, right? That's kind of our mantra. But in the first century, in the early church, that was the last thing they did. You, you didn't get to go to church. You showed up at a church and no one knew you, they slammed the door in your face. It was only the people that were known that could come together and worship in the upper room. And Because if it was a spy for one of the Roman soldiers, you'd be hauled off, and, and at least later on in the 60s, suffer being burned at the stake or whatever the persecution might be. Uh, so we see the similar things. But Freemasonry uh, traces its origins all the way back to the Middle Ages, the 12th, 13th century, uh, and the local stonemason guilds. But it, in modern times, it became a secret uh, Luciferian society. Uh, the first Grand Lodge in mo of modern Freemasonry was uh, it's now called the Grand Lodge of England, or GLE, but it was, it was originally called the Grand Lodge of London and Westminster. But it was founded on June 24, 1717. And the degrees of Freemasonry retain the three grades of that medieval stonecraft, and they're called uh, you know, a, a apprentice, journeyman, and, and uh, master mason. Uh, now they call them uh, apprentice... Fellowcraft. Uh, Fellowcraft, exactly. Fellowcraft. And master and so apprentice, instead of journeyman, it's now called fellowcraft and then master mason. Um, so uh, Albert Pike, uh, widely recognized as sort of the father of modern Freemasonry in his book Morals and Dogma, wrote this, Masonry, like all religions, conceals its secrets from all except the adepts and sages or the elect 
and uses false explanations and misrepresentations of its symbols to mislead those who only deserve to be misled. I mean, that's, that's what a secret society does. It lies. It does things in, uh, in secret. Um, and then he also said, that which we say to a crowd is we worship a god. But it's the but it is the God but it is the God one adores without superstition. In other words, it's not the God you think it is. Uh, to you, sovereign grand inspectors general, to you initiates, to you adepts, we say this, and that you might repeat it to the brethren of the thirty second, thirty first, and thirtieth degrees, the people below you. The Masonic religion should be, by all of us initiates of the high degrees, maintained in the purity of the Luciferian doctrine. Yes, Lucifer is God, he says. Lucifer, God of light and God of good, is struggling for humanity against Adonai. That's the, the play on the Hebrew word Adonai for Lord. God of darkness and evil. So you see how they turn everything 180 degrees on its head? On its head? God's word, his self-revelation to mankind, tells us he's the light. Satan is darkness. Luciferians think it's just uh, the opposite. So, you know, this is the reason that some, you know, low-level Freemasons that you might talk to act like it's okay because, you know, they say, we like to talk about God. You know, it's okay. Well, it's not okay. And I don't have any patience for that. Ignorance is not an excuse that you got yourself into a satanic cult where they're literally drinking blood at the highest levels and don't know about it doesn't excuse it before you swear a blood oath which is what all initiates have all people have to do even at the lowest levels you might want to look into what you're swearing to right uh, it's similar to the way some christians think a 12-step program uh, is okay because they're talking about a higher power and they just in their mind insert God there. But in listen, any group or organization that shrouds the name of Almighty God and His Son Jesus Christ in secrecy or symbolism is a tool of, the, of Satan, ultimately. And, you know, the Freemasons come right out uh, and say that. Uh, there is evidence that Freemasonry, though it wasn't called by that name way back in the ancient times, dates back to the Egyptian age. They found artifacts that have known Masonic symbols on them. They found hand signs dating from that long ago. And even some, of, some pharaohs have been found wearing uh, the aprons. Uh, but officially it started in 1717. Here's the Masonic Temple in Washington, D.C., and as I mentioned, when you join the lodge, as with any secret society, you go through an initiation ceremony. And in that ceremony, the initiate is bare-chested and blindfolded with a noose around his neck. He's then taken outside the lodge, and they knock on the door, and, and, and the person inside asks the initiate what they want. And then the person says, I want to come out of the darkness and enter into the light of Freemasonry. And so then... They're brought into the lodge, still blindfolded, and a dagger or sword or other sharp knife of some kind is placed against the bare chest, and they swear the first of many blood oaths and curses over himself and his family, and he agrees to be murdered or mutilated if the oath of the degree is ever violated. So I mentioned secret handshakes. They're very common and prevalent throughout Masonic uh, teaching. And uh, I also mentioned how a lot of times it's used to identify that there's another Freemason there. Freemasons have a long-standing 
uh, agreement. Uh, they actually, you know, swear an oath that if you're, let's say you're a Freemason and you're applying for a job or you're applying for entrance into, you know, uh, a school, medical school or grad school or law school or you're even trying to get a promotion. And if, if, if there is a Freemason on the search committee that you're uh, applying to and they know you're a Freemason, then they will make sure you get accepted. Guarantee. They swear an oath to do that. Regardless of other qualified candidates, if there's two candidates, one's a Freemason, and there's a Freemason involved in the decision-making process, you're in. That's the way it works. Um, so uh, here's one example of a uh, handshake where the Mason takes the fellow Mason by the right hand as an ordinary handshake, but then presses the top of his thumb uh, hard on the second knuckle and the fellow mason presses his thumb against the same knuckle of the first masons and, and if you watch closely and there's plenty of uh, video evidence of this out there but you'll see this with a lot of different uh, people you know here's the pope with one of his bishops um, here's billy graham uh, now billy graham evangelistic association back in 1997 denied that he was ever a mason officially in, in writing but there's all kinds of smoking gun evidence that he indeed was a top-level Freemason. Um, here, here he's shaking hands with Harry Truman, uh, by the way, and Harry Truman was admittedly a Freemason. And so he's, he's giving that, uh, that handshake. If you kind of zoom in, you can kind of see where he's putting his hand right on that knuckle, his thumb, all right? And he's also got the hidden hand. We're going to talk about that. It's not quite hidden, but maybe he missed it. I don't know. Uh, here's Bush. Uh, talking to the president of the Latter-day Saints, the, the Mormons, on May 29, 2008 in Salt Lake City. And that's a different handshake, but it's the same uh, kind of one with the, with the fingers uh, going down the side of the wrist. Um, you know, the hidden hand sign is, is used in, in throughout masonry. You see a lot of pictures here. Uh, this is Marx uh, uh, up there in the top middle. Then you've got Napoleon. Uh, down the bottom left, I found that picture of, of a young Frederick Nietzsche, that German atheist philosopher, and he's, you know, posing with the hidden hand symbol. It's where they put their hand inside their coat. Then you see Stalin there, and of course that famous picture of George Washington, same thing, and obviously he was a Freemason, as were many of the founding fathers uh, that came over from, from Europe. So Manley P. Hall, uh, who in his book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, which is basically an encyclopedia of Masonic teachings, said, and I've quoted this before, there are invisible powers behind the thrones of earth and men are but marionettes dancing while the invisible ones pull the strings. So Freemasonry was the first one and then closely related is the, the Illuminati or often called the Bavarian Illuminati was founded in Bavaria in 1776, uh, which is now in modern day uh, Germany by Adam uh, Weishaupt uh, and he was a German philosopher and uh, lawyer uh, and he's the founder of the Illuminati. Now you've heard me talk many times as, that July 4th 1776 was the founding of the Illuminati in America. That's true. That's the de facto date. They officially founded it in Bavaria May 1st just a couple months earlier but then they came over here and, and many of the uh, intentions of those that came over to the New World to establish the New World Order. That was what their own writing said they were trying to do. Uh, uh, 
you know, it basically launched the same day that our Constitution launched. It doesn't mean that all of the founding fathers were in on it. It doesn't mean that there weren't God-fearing, uh, you know, especially the, the group before the uh, Europeans came over, the Puritans and people like that, the Plymouth Rock crowd. Uh, but by the time it got to be established and we declared our independence, uh, there was a heavy, heavy influence among Luciferians and secret societies wanting to create a new beachhead for this one world uh, system. So uh, the Illuminati's main symbol, as you probably know, is on the back of the dollar bill, uh, the all-seeing eye. And you see the Latin words annuit captus, meaning a wooden translation would be favored beginnings. Now, people that don't want to look behind the curtain of some of the Luciferian origins of uh, our country often sort of paraphrase it, uh, uh, saying something like, um, you know, God favored our beginnings. Uh, well, as I've talked about, uh, there's no question that the fingerprints of God, our Creator, are all over this great country. And it's the greatest country on earth, and it's been used of God in many ways to expand the gospel and so forth. But that doesn't mean that Satan didn't also have a hand in the early days of our country. And uh, Anuit Keptus does not mean, doesn't even say the word God. Um, it's, uh, you know, basically we were favored from the beginning. And so the big question is, by whom? Well, when you look at the bottom part underneath the all-seeing eye there, Novus Ordo Seclorum, a new secret order. So this, herein begins this new secret uh, order. Uh, and the goal of the Illuminati was to form a one-world government in their own writings. That's what they wanted to accomplish. And the Congress of Vienna uh, was, according to their beliefs, brought about by the Illuminati, who hoped to achieve their goal of forming this one-world government after the French Revolution. Now, they didn't succeed and haven't yet. But we know, if you believe the Bible, that ultimately, uh, and possibly even before the rapture, there will be a one-world system. We know the Antichrist won't take the helm of it until after the rapture. Uh, that much we know, but we don't know if we'll already be in one, and he just steps into the leadership role. Many of you are familiar with Skull and Bones, the next uh, secret society I'd like to talk about. Uh, if you've seen the, the, the movie The Good Shepherd in 2006 uh, that starred Matt Damon, Angelina Jolie, and Robert De Niro, I think De Niro also directed that film. That film is based on the beginnings of the Skull and Bones secret society at Yale University. Uh, it's also known as the Order of 322. So this is the oldest uh, secret society associated with Yale University. There are over 40, by the way, secret societies that emanate from Yale University. Things like Scroll and Key, Book and Shake, uh, Book and Snake, rather, Wolf's Head. Um, but uh, the Skull and Bones is by far the most influential, as I'll show you in a second. And it's also one of the richest. According to Business Insider Magazine, and this was in 2015, they had over $4 million in assets at this secret society, which you know the general public just looks at as, oh, it's just like a little fraternity for college kids to have some fun. But I don't know very many fraternities that have $4 million in their checking account. You don't get that from selling chocolate chip cookies and a lemonade stand at, in the quad. You know. But anyway, this is where... The, <clears throat> where they meet. Um, it is called the tomb. That's what they call it. Uh, the founder 
uh, of uh, Skull and Bones was Alfonso Taft, who was the father of William Taft, who became the president. And uh, he, uh, Alfonso Taft in 1832 co-founded Skull and Bones with William Huntington Russell. Uh, and in 1856, Russell incorporated the Russell Trust as the business arm of the Skull and Bones Society. And each year, 15 seniors at Yale are tapped to join Skull and Bones. And uh, they go through this initiation ceremony behind closed doors of the tomb. Uh, it's where they meet. Skull and Bones meets twice a week throughout the year. Uh, but they take an oath of secrecy, obviously. It's part and parcel to a secret society. And then uh, graduate members are referred to as patriarchs, while those coming in in their senior year are called knights. Um, anybody not part of Skull and Bones, an outsider in other words, is referred to as a barbarian. That's the way they think of us. Um, there, I'm going to show you a thing. Let me make sure I... No, I didn't. So uh, I don't have a picture of it, but some famous Skull and Bones members include... Uh, William Howard Taft, as I mentioned, George H.W. Bush, and his son, George W. Bush, um, the founder of Time Magazine, Henry Luce, uh, also uh, John Kerry. I mean, that's another whole story we don't have time to get into. But what are the odds in a country as large as ours that in 2008, the two candidates out of 335 million that we put forward to be the right-left candidates in this fake system are not only both Skull and Bones members, but cousins. They're related. Look it up. John Kerry and George, H., or George W. Bush are cousins. But anyway, they're all kind of Fortune 500 elites, many, many members of the CIA, as that film uh, talks about. That's kind of how it had its, uh, its beginnings. Skull and Bones was so uh, indicative, or you might say it so epitomized that East Coast elitism uh, that back in 1925, F. Scott Fitzgerald had two of his main characters in The Great Gatsby belonging to Skull and Bones Secret Society. Uh, and also later on in the television series Batman, uh, Bruce Wayne's grandfather wears a Yale sweater in his portrait over the fire, and he's said to have been founded, uh, said to have founded Skull and Bones in, in the made-up narrative of that sh uh, show, that sitcom. But they meet in this crypt-like sandstone structure they call the tomb, and only Skull and Bones members may enter. It's adorned with skeletons and skulls and portraits of famous past members all throughout the walls. I mentioned the number 322 that appears on Skull and Bones Society's insignia, and nobody knows for sure what it means, but uh, what most people suggest is that it refers to 322 BC when Athens was defeated and had to dissolve its democracy and then of course a new plutocratic government allowed just the wealthiest Athenians to remain citizens. Again a nod to this one world uh, government. Uh, Skull and Bones also owns Deer Island in the St. Lawrence River in Alexandria, New York and they use it for get-togethers and every new member visits it. It's a 40-acre retreat with dense undergrowth and stone ruins and this small lodge and they have the whole island to themselves. And One bonesman, that's what they call themselves, uh, described it as a beautiful dump and uh, initiates when they go through the initiation ceremony have to lie naked in a coffin and answer intrusive personal questions while enduring unspeakable acts. Now, you may know the name Antony Sutton. 
You always see this misspelled as Anthony. It's, his name is not Anthony with an H. It's Antony, no H, uh, who died under very suspicious circumstances in 2002. But he wrote the definitive book about the Order of Skull and Bones and called it America's Secret Establishment, in which he says it's a recruiting ground for the global conspiracy for world government. And he was able to, with the help of Charlotte Iserby, strangely enough, I'm not sure what the connection was, but, but he had some connection with her, to get a list of names uh, from, uh, you know, of past members, and that's why we know as much as we do know uh, now. But in, interestingly in that book, this is a little off topic, but he also says, in this process, change requires conflict, and conflict requires the clash of opposites. You can't just have a right, you must have a right and a left. And this, you know, he was writing about the same time that uh, Carol Quigley wrote Tragedy and Hope, in which he exposes from the Council on Foreign Relations this fake right-left paradigm that now dominates our political structure to this day. But here's a couple of clips uh, for you. This is uh, uh, Peter Jennings. You know, once it kind of leaked out some of the stuff that goes on at Skull and Bones, and this was uh, someone kind of snuck in and had a secret video. Then, of course, the mainstream media has to deal with it. So what do they do? They just sort of make light of it and kind of laugh like it's no big deal. And why is everybody worried about this stuff? So listen to this clip and this little report from uh, ABC. And so when we heard that some enterprising characters had managed to spy on the famous Skull and Bone Society, well, we couldn't resist. Here's ABC's Dan Harris. The videotape provides a grainy glimpse into what appear to be the initiation rituals of a secret society that's been around since 1832, with members have gone on to be leaders of Wall Street and the White House, the Senate and the Supreme Court. They're sort of trying to scare the initiates, make them, uh, you know, disorient them, frighten them. New York Observer investigative reporter Ron Rosenbaum accompanied a team of Yale students who shot these pictures nine days ago. Rosenbaum's curiosity about skull and bones was permanently piqued when, as a classmate of George W. Bush, he lived right next to the tomb, the group's heavily fortified home. From their perch, Rosenbaum and his cohorts taped the tomb's courtyard. What they captured, they say, was initiates, known as neophytes, being forced to kiss a skull, then members performing a mock killing. Well, proud to be an American, right? And so in 2008, or let's see, was it, when was Bush, when was the Bush-Kerry election? 12? No, 12 was Romp, was, uh, wow, I'm really losing my mind. 04. Right, because 08 then was uh, Obama, and we put forth that very formidable team of uh, What's his name? Palin and uh, McCain. Yeah. Wow. I'm sure Obama was shaking in his boots at that. But anyway, um, so so now that I've got my time right, because 2000, of course, was the infamous uh, Al Gore election. So 04 we're talking about. So here he is on Meet the Press. This is Bush first, uh, and then you'll see Kerry, where Tim Russert asks them about you know skull and bones. What if he's still involved with the secret society? It's so secret you can't talk about it. What does that mean to America? 
the conspiracy theorists are going to realize. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen the one number three, two, two. First of all, it's not the man in and, uh, but, uh, but I look for you to pay the Look at how serious he is there. I'm not going to lose. Because, you know, it's a rigged game. He, he knew he was, he was selected, not uh, elected. But anyway. Both the members of Skull and Bones are a secret society of Yale. What does that tell us? Uh, not much because it's a secret. <laughs> is it a secret handshake? Is it a secret code? I wish there were something secret I could manifest. Are you 22? A secret number? There are all kinds of secrets. Then the one thing is not a secret. I disagree with this president's direction that is taking the country. We can do a better job, and I intend to do it. And we'll be watching to be safe on the campaign trail. Don't take and we'll be right back. So, you know, they both artfully dodged the question, right? They're not about to talk about it. This is serious stuff. This isn't just some old, good old boys club. I mean, there's literal spiritual warfare at play here and we don't know all that goes on because that's what makes them a secret society we know they exist we know a lot about them but there are a lot of things we don't know but there's two men running for the highest office in america both of them just quickly just give a nervous laugh and say well we can't really tell you because it's secret ha 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 and move on and uh I, I believe they had to do that because of that expose reporter from the New York Observer that unveiled some stuff, and it was before it blew up. They just get out in front of it, and you know, Peter Jennings does something that was in '01, and then you know by now everybody knows about it. You got Anthony Sutton's book, and so you know they just have to kind of say, "Well, we talked about it; it's no big deal." Right? The next one is Bohemian Grove, and uh, they've uh, been. Uh, you know, in the news a lot, and it's a very intriguing one. In my research over the last 15 years of the Luciferian conspiracy, it's one of the places I've actually driven by and taken pictures. Um, you can't get very close, but you can get before there's armed guards. But you can get you can get close enough to say you got close, uh, which was what my goal was. Um, but the, the, the Grove, for example, uh, uh, which it's been around for many many decades. Um, one of the most famous things that came out of it is that's where they secretly put together the Manhattan Project. Uh, and of course, that was one of the best kept secrets in history. You know, anytime people say, well, it can't be that big of a conspiracy, people would talk about it. No, they wouldn't. That's just, you just don't know psychology if you think that. It is very easy to perpetuate a lie and to keep people from talking about it. Very easy. They have all kinds of ways. CIA knows all kinds of ways to keep, make people keep their mouths shut. Uh, and and the Manhattan Projects is, is one that you know how many thousands of people worked on that project and nobody had a clue. Right? Uh, but we also uh, know that the, Bohe the uh, Bohemian Grove is also where Carter was tapped to be president and uh, Clinton, Bill Clinton, was tapped to be president there. Uh, but uh, the original founding place of Bohemian Grove was at Muir Woods National Monument. Some of you may have been there. Beautiful park. We went there w with the kids. And they actually have a monument there to Bohemian Grove. I uh, uh, forget the year, but uh, the UN was meeting, and uh, UN members came all the way out uh, there and uh, gathered together in Muir Woods and had you know, all these world leaders there talking and strategizing and so forth. But it eventually moved north. Uh, to the place where it is now, a privately owned uh, 
retreat in uh, the Redwoods. Uh, their motto, uh, which is on uh, part of the edifice there of the fence, uh, is weaving spiders come not here. And that is uh, a reference to, as best we can tell, to the fact that they're sworn to secrecy and the things that happen there. If you're one of these that's going to go out telling tales and talking all about the stuff that goes on here, uh, then, you know, you don't bother to come because uh, we'll take care of you if you do. So world leaders, top business leaders from all across the world, I mean, prime ministers, presidents, you name it, have met there for years. It's a three-week-long event every year in June, uh, every year, and they don't all come for all of it. You might just come in for an afternoon, but they have plenary sessions and big sessions, and then they also have these little breakout sessions where, you know, if they're going to be talking about, okay, who do we want to be the next president of the United States? You meet over here. Who, which war do we want to start next? And which nation do we want to topple next? You meet over here, and you have all these meetings. Meanwhile, they, uh, they, it's, it's a total debauchery and complete, you know, all kinds of evil that takes place there for entertainment. Uh, it's only men, and they bring in a bunch of male prostitutes. In fact, the, the reason we know as much as we do know about it is because of an investigative reporter who snuck in on one of the buses with a bunch of other male prostitutes posing as a male prostitute. And then he had a secret camera and he went around uh, taking pictures. But at the end of the ceremony, at the end of the three weeks, they have a ceremony called the Cremation of Care in which they burn this three-story high owl and they bring out, they're all dressed in druid satanic garb and they bring out a uh, effigy, at least we think it's an effigy, of a child sacrifice laying on a stretcher that they throw into the fire. And the idea behind that closing ceremony, called cremation of care, is that now that we've had our meetings and we've kind of given your marching orders and everybody kind of knows what we're going to do, when you leave this place, don't let your conscience stop you from following through. You have to cremate your conscience. It's called cremation of care, but what they mean is cremations of, cremation of conscience, that you have to do this for the greater good. Um, here's a picture from uh, the early days. Uh, here's a picture showing Reagan and Nixon at Bohemian Grove. Um, it's become quite a thing in pop culture. In fact, uh, the Netflix uh, series House of Cards, if you remember, starring Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright, is a pretty despicable uh, series, but he was president, Frank Underwood, and it featured a very similar theme with a Bohemian Grove-like retreat. This is a still shot from one of those episodes. Same idea where they had a, hum, a mock human sacrifice to, to symbolize, you know, getting rid of your conscience. So here's about a, a minute and 44 second footage and commentary. It's part of a broader, I think it's a two hour full length documentary from this uh, reporter that put together, uh, I think the documentary is called Secrets of Bohemian Grove, or I forget the exact title. But anyway, this is just a short clip under two minutes that I want to kind of show you of actual cremation of care ceremony. Now we're going to get to some enhanced video and we'll go play by play through some of the more occultic statements like we shall read the sign in your burned effigy, the bound body. That's exactly what the druids actually did. They would roast cats, uh, goats, oxen, horses and watch the pain of how they died and 
from this extract some type of mystical energy force or power and also be able to tell the future. Upon further research of the ritual you just witnessed, it becomes clear. It is a mixture of the Babylonian Canaanite cult of Moloch fused with ancient Druidic rites where you have the female side of Satan, which they first call out to in the she, and then towards the horn god with the he, mixed with Masonic rites from Scotland. It's very likely that many of the 1,500 to 2,000 member crowd had really no idea what they were actually watching because it was thinly veiled. Here we have some more enhanced video as the boatman, again with his face painted up like a skull, pulls his boat uh, across the small lake towards the high priest with the red of his cloak visible with his hand outstretched as if he is pulling the damned soul towards him as they throw off their cares, their conscience for what they have to do in the world. So then interestingly enough, the same reporter once ambushed David Gergen. If you know that name, David Gergen, a big time politician, Republican and Democrat, he served in everything from uh, Carter, Nick, or let's see, Ford, Carter, Reagan, and he's just, he's always a talking head on CNN. He's, he's got to be 120 years old by now, but anyway, uh, he's big time insider and, and, and member of Bohemian Grove. And so he catches him in DC. I think this was in DC. And it's just kind of telling how Gergen responds. One last question. I read a Washington Times article many years ago where you had a comment about the organization, and then now it's been in the Wall Street Journal, it's been in a lot of different newspapers, and that's the Bohemian Grove. And back in, what was it, 1996 when you joined uh, as a Clinton advisor, they were, the Republicans were criticizing you, oh, what about Bohemian Grove? And then you countered them up. And then you countered them by saying, hey, I don't run around in the woods naked. What did that mean? Here is the before-mentioned Washington Times article where he said, I didn't run around naked like they do. I don't, I don't, I don't, know, what, I don't know what quote you're referring to. I'm not aware of any quote like that. Uh, listen, uh, I, I am a, 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 a happy member of the Bohemian Grove. I like the, uh, the folks who come there. And uh, it's really inappropriate for me to uh, talk about a, uh, uh, the group beyond that. Have you been there for the ceremony with uh, the cremation of care? Uh, frankly, that's, uh, that's, I don't think that's something I need to talk to you about. So, and, you know, you can just see the guilt written all over his face. Gergen, by the way, is a, a known out homosexual, and so he absolutely did enjoy some of the entertainment that was uh, taking place between sessions. The Roundtable Group was established by uh, in, in 1870. John Ruskin, who was a... English professor taught his apprentices that some people were superior to others. All this coming out of the milieu of the Darwinianism and uh, eugenics movement. And that one superior man should rule the world, John Ruskin said. And so his lessons were embraced by a powerful, powerful man named Cecil Rhodes, who would go on to spend all of his wealth that he gained through diamonds and gold in South Africa mining. Uh, to achieve the, his lifelong dream of a world government, a new world order. Here's what Cecil Rhodes said. 
to and for the establishment, promotion, and development of a secret society, the true aim and object whereof shall be for the extension of British rule throughout the world, I would annex the planets if I could. In other words, his desire for world government was so strong that he said, I, I, would, I would take over the planets if we could uh, do that. Um, so uh, in his first will, uh, and we're going to talk about his last will in a second, but he talked about wishing to create a secret society, which he wanted to call the Society of the Elect, that would strive continuously for this goal if it hadn't happened by the time he died. Now, Carol Quigley, we've talked a lot about in the previous six sessions, and he gets a lot of coverage in my Spirit of the Antichrist series. Key figure, uh, he was a historian who was the basically the historian for the Council of Foreign Relations, um, as well as being a Georgetown professor. Clinton uh, considers him his greatest mentor, Bill Clinton, that is, and in his acceptance speech in 92 at the Democratic National Convention, he mentioned him by name and gave him credit. But Quigley said this in his book, Tragedy and Hope, in the middle of the 1890s, Rhodes had a personal income of at least a million pounds sterling a year, which he spent so freely for mysterious purposes that he was usually overdrawn on his account. Cecil Rhodes' commitment to a conspiracy to establish world government was set down in a series of wills described by Frank Idelot. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, but he wrote a book about Cecil Rhodes uh, called American Rhodes Scholarships. So in 1891, Rhodes established a secret society which later became known as the Round Table Group. And like the Illuminati, the Round Table has an inner core with various circles of associations built around it. It became international and established organizations and associate societies in many countries around the world. International bankers were involved in the society from the beginning, such as Lord Rothschild of England. And uh, he was a very powerful member of the House of Rothschild. And he basically financed Rhodes' uh, mining monopoly in Rhodesia. In fact, the country of Rhodesia was named after Cecil Rhodes. That's why they call it Rhodesia. Uh, 1980, Rhodesia became Zimbabwe, so we don't have a Rhodesia anymore. But it was essentially his, uh, his country. Um, but uh, many groups have been established by the Roundtable Group. Over the last hundred years in the United States, they were instrumental in establishing the Council on Foreign Relations with David Rockefeller. In the UK, they established the Royal Institute of International Affairs. They also helped establish the Bilderberg Group. And uh, it's a, it's, it, the, the roundtable consists of top-tier world bankers, uh, central bank owners, um, such as people that own the, the Federal Reserve. I think everybody knows the Federal Reserve is a privately owned central bank owned by six families. Um, it's not a government agency. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of their discussions, like most secret societies, are never made public, but their purpose has been made public, which is the formation of a world government. That's their plan. So, again, I mentioned uh, the book by Frank Idelot, I think is how you pronounce his name. But uh, in his last will, Rhodes formed the well-known Rhodes Scholarship through which young students from all over the world would receive higher education and the indoctrination into one-worldism. Now today, the media talks about a Rhodes Scholar as if it's a huge, you know, incredible uh, uh, thing to be named a Rhodes Scholar, but it's not. It just means you were handpicked by somebody to be a part of this uh, conspiracy. In 1888, Rhodes made his third and final will, leaving everything to Lord Rothschild, who again, as I mentioned, was his financier. And uh, he also uh, 
uh, gave and uh, included a letter in the will that is talked about the written matter discussed between us, which was a model that proposed a secret society uh, patterned after what was then known as the Society of Jesus, but also he mentions the Masons in his document as being a pattern for what they wanted to establish. And uh, according to Professor Carol Quigley, the central part of the secret society was established by March 1891 using Rhodes as money. And uh, it was run originally by, uh, for the Rothschild organization by Lord Alfred Milner, whom you see there on the screen. And he worked from behind the scenes at the highest levels, influencing all kinds of foreign policy and so forth. But the Rhodes Scholarship was established by Lord Alfred Milner, who was running the uh, roundtable group. And, uh, you know, they handpicked people from all over the world, enticing these young people with humanitarian ideals. They show them the needs of the world and inspire them to come and help. You know, we need smart minds like you to come help us find solutions for the world. And, but you've got to be, you know, handpicked. You've got to be recommended by other elites and so forth. Uh, and, you know, here's just a few notable Rhodes uh, scholars. Uh, starting at the top there, that's George Stephanopoulos, key figure in media. Uh, and then uh, Paul Sarbanes, who was uh, a uh, three-term congressman and five-term senator from Maryland. You see Susan Rice there, third from the left on the top row, obviously key advisor to President Barack Obama and the first African-American woman to be ambassador to the UN. And it's not just a Democrat-Republican thing. Remember, that's a fake-out. There is no right-left paradigm. There's a right-wrong paradigm. It's called the Bible. But there's not a right-left paradigm. And Bobby Jindal, the Republican governor, uh, is a Rhodes Scholar as well, very much indoctrinated into one-worldism. You see former Supreme Court Justice David Souter on the bottom row there. Uh, that's not the best picture of the next guy, but that's uh, Dean Rusk, who was Secretary of State under JFK and Lyndon Johnson. And uh, he was very ardent in his support for the Vietnam War. And then you've got another media personality, Rachel Maddow. Uh, again, they control the media through these secret societies and things like Operation Mockingbird. And then Cory Booker, you've heard a lot about him recently. I believe he was one of the, he ran for the nomination, if I recall. Um, but, you know, it wasn't his year. But, you know, one of the biggest ones uh, is, of course, Bill Clinton. He never finished, but he was given a Rhodes Scholarship, but he never graduated over there. But he became uh, president. Uh, the CFR is another one, and, and we'll uh, kind of wrap up with these last couple of here, ones here. I've talked about the CFR quite a bit. Uh, it's uh, founded by David Rockefeller. Um, David Rockefeller, who said, by the way, in 1973, the social experiment in China under Chairman Mao's leadership is one of the most important and successful in human history. <laughs> now just let that sink in with all the millions of people Mao killed. And speaking of communism, Karl Marx famously said, With Satan I have struck my deal. He chalks the signs, beats time for me, and I play the death march fast and free. Remember, Satan loves death. The magazine for the CFR is called Foreign Affairs. You'll see this frequently referenced in news articles. Mainstream media talks about it. And, you know, you kind of hear, oh, this article comes from Foreign Affairs. And you think, oh, that's a pretty prestigious magazine. No, it's not. It's the propaganda arm of the CFR. It's the magazine that they uh, put out. Carol Quigley 
again, going back to tragedy and hope, his book said, The Council on Foreign Relations is the American branch of a society which originated in England and believes national boundaries should be obliterated and one world rule established. That's the reason David Rockefeller, and I've given you this quote many times, said, We are grateful to the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine, and other great publications whose directors have attended our meetings, talking about the CFR, and respected their promises of discretion for almost 40 years. It would have been impossible for us to develop our plan for the world if we'd been subject to the bright lights of publicity during all those years. Thank goodness for the state-run media, right? So that's why we call that weapons of mass deception. Gary Allen and none dare call it conspiracy, which is essentially a Cliff's Notes uh, commentary on Carol Quigley's Tragedy and Hope, said, we believe the picture painters of the mass media are artfully creating landscapes for us which deliberately hide the real picture. This has always been true. I mean, the, the fake out is that somehow in America, our media is independent. N nobody who knows anything about this would say that. It's, it's been rigged from the beginning, earliest days of our nation, as it is with any nation. You can't have free press if you want to accomplish a secret hidden goal. Maybe that's why Thomas Jefferson famously said, people who don't read the newspapers know more than those who do. Because at least then you're not propagandized. It's more dangerous to be misinformed than uninformed. But, you know, every president is in tight with the CFR. Here's Bush speaking at the CFR. Here's Obama speaking at the CFR. And, you know, Donald Trump, the so-called outsider, immediately surrounded himself uh, with advisors and cabinet members who were CFR members, such as Jim Mattis, his first defense secretary. And then I think Mark Esper was his second. He's also a CFR member. And I don't remember how many cabinet members Trump went through, you, you lose, lost count after the first couple of weeks, but there were at least 67, 67 CFR members in Trump's high-level senior advisor administration, including people like John Bolton, Rex Tillerson, Mike Pompeo, uh, Anthony Scarmucci, uh, Jerome Powell, uh, Rick Perry, and, and many, uh, Jared Kushner. Uh, John Foster Dulles was co-founder of the CFR, and he said the United Nations represents not a final stage in the development of the world order, but only a primitive stage. Therefore, its primary task, the UN, is to create the conditions which will make possible a more highly developed organization. In his book, War or Peace, he said, quote, I've never seen any proposal made for collective security with teeth in it, or for world government, or for world federation, which could not be carried out either by the United Nations or under the United Nations Charter. And uh, key members in establishing the UN are some great guys like Alger Hiss and Joseph Stalin. So speaking of the UN, here's a clip, 21 seconds. Listen to what this Fox News commentator says as the Pope comes to speak at the UN. Uh, it'll be his first address to the United Nations General Assembly. He's going to set the tone for the anti-Arman Summit, where leaders will adopt ambitious new global development goals for the next 15 years. So this, on the second anniversary of the founding of the United Nations, the Pope Minister will be giving one of the marching orders for the next decade and a half. The Pope is going to be giving the UN its marching orders for the next decade and a half. I mean, these are the kind of things that are... They're, now, they're just every media uh, commentators just reading a cue card, you know, but uh, it's interesting. Uh, here's a Biden with Richard Nathan Haas. You may know that name. Uh, he's been president of the CFR since July of 2003. 
prior to which he was Director of Policy Planning for the U.S. Department of State. He's a close advisor to Secretary of State Colin Powell, and uh, he's also been the U.S. Coordinator for many years for the future of Afghanistan. Hmm. Richard Nathan Haas. So here's a short clip that I got a kick out of. This is uh, Richard Haas, and of course you see President Biden sitting there. And listen to what Biden says. The subject of today is uh, another article in the uh, in the magazine. Uh, I probably should introduce myself to people. Everybody, uh, my name is Richard Haas. By the way, uh, I work here at the Council on Foreign Relations. And I work for Richard. <laughs> and I work for Richard. <laughs> he absolutely does. Uh, here's Hillary Clinton at the CFR. Listen to what she says about the CFR. Thank you very much, um, Richard, and I am delighted to be here in these new headquarters. Um, I have been often to, uh, I guess, the mothership in New York City, uh, but it's good to have an outpost of the council right here down the street from the State Department. Uh, we get a lot of advice from the council, so this will mean I won't have this far to go to uh, be told uh, what we should be doing and uh, how uh, we should uh, think about the future. I won't have far to go to be told what we need to do, what we're supposed to be doing, you know. It's right there hidden in plain sight. Uh, here's uh, Dick Cheney acknowledging uh, that his Wyoming supporters are probably not too happy about his association with the CFR. It's good to be back at the Council on Foreign Relations. As uh, Pete mentioned, I've been a member for a long time and was actually a director for some period of time. I never mentioned that when I was campaigning for re-election back home in Wyoming. <laughs> See, they have the, the inner sanctum of all of these elites have this inside joke. And, and that what is presented in the right-left paradigm of, you know, on the Rush Limbaugh's and Sean Hannity's and whatever's is that, oh, he's a conservative, he's from Wyoming, and, he, you know, every now and then he, you know, puts on his boots or puts on his, you know, flannel jacket and a hat and goes out hunting and shoots somebody. Um, but anyway, uh, and that's the, that's the photo op. But that's not it at all. So here's some notable CFR members. I think you'll recognize most of these uh, names, but a key, key group. Um, you know, presidents of universities, top-level cabinet members, presidents of the United States, and so forth and so on. The Bilderberg Group, just a couple things about that. It was uh, first had its first meeting in the Hotel de Bilderberg in Oosterbeek, the Netherlands. This was back in 1954. And uh, it moves around uh, different places. They meet, try to meet in secret, but inevitably someone finds out uh, about it. But uh, this is truly a, a, kind of like the Bohemian Grove, but without all of the, the debauchery, and it's not as long of a deal. It's usually just a two- or three-day weekend. But this is where they come together. In fact, you may remember this was even covered in the mainstream news. Let's see if I can get my dates right again. Uh, 08, after W's eight years, so then Obama ran. And in the primary, if you remember who Obama's... Uh, opponent was, was Hillary. And it was up until late in the campaign, it was really anybody's guess, I mean, to the mainstream public, who was going to get the nomination. Well, then they met at Bilderberg, it happened to be held in America that year, and uh, came out of that, and it was decided from people that leaked information that uh, Obama would be president, and that Hillary would then be the heir apparent. She would get Secretary of State, but then she would be the heir apparent 
after Obama's, you know, eight years. And it almost happened, right? Except, you know, Trump's hackers were better than her hackers, and so he, he kind of threw a little wrench in, uh, in the plans there in 2012, uh, or 2016, rather. Um, but James Morkin uh, is a actor, writer, producer. He lives in Australia, but he's written two best-selling novels and uh, is an expert on Bilderberg. And he says, quote, Bilderberg pulls the strings of every government and intelligence agency in the Western world. It's not like a fun and games meeting where they just kind of are hobnobbing. And it's like, let's get down to business. We're here for two days. Here's what's going to happen. Um, don't forget what Edward Bernays said back in 1928. This was in his book Propaganda in 1928 when all of these groups, a lot of them that we've just talked about, were just starting. A presidential candidate may be drafted in response to overwhelming popular demand, but it's well known that his name was first decided upon by a half dozen men sitting around a table in a hotel room. Uh, Club of Rome, uh, I mentioned this when we talked about the World Economic Forum. It was founded in 1968. And it consists of current and former heads of state, UN bureaucrats, high-level politicians, government officials, diplomats, scientists, economists, business leaders, all from around the globe. And they were instrumental in starting the World Economic Forum back in 1971 with Klaus Schwab. I won't go back and repeat all that. It's in part one of What in the World is Going On series. But remember, one of the things that the Club of Rome first produced was a 1972 book called The Limits to Growth, in which they advocated for depopulation and killing all of the useless breathers and people that were people of color or people that walked with a limp or people that, you know, had injuries or whatever. And this book is extremely influential to this day. Uh, you'll still hear people mention it positively on different mainstream uh, media uh, outlets. I wouldn't be surprised if it came up this uh, t week when Biden was here talking about global warming with all these different uh, people because they're all kind of tied together. But remember, the World Economic Forum uh, is really just the, the Luciferian endgame. So there are a few others that are less, I'm just going to mention them, we won't take the time uh, to go through them, but uh, that are less uh, significant, but you should probably be familiar with their name. The Knights Templar, the Order of the Assassins. Opus Dei is a Jesuit Roman Catholic uh, group that's made up of largely uh, lay people, not priests, that is very influential, over 100,000 strong. Uh, Rosicrucianism is another sort of mystical, esoteric, sat overtly satanic group, and it's widely believed that the Rosicrucians were behind the establishment of the uh, Georgia Guidestones. We've been out there taking pictures, and the Georgia Guidestones outside of Atlanta mysteriously appeared in 1980, and uh, one of their Ten Commandments for the New World Order is to reduce humanity to 500 million people. So the Luciferian conspiracy definitely makes use of secret societies. That's the reason in the diagram that I've used for many years. I tweak it every now and then and so forth based on my own studies and new information. But you see at the second tier there a whole category of secret societies. Uh, and they work kind of hand in glove influencing business and finance. So at the top tier are those you know, six families or so that are the actual Satan-worshipping ones that take their marching orders from Satan. And in the line of Moloch and other ancient Near Eastern satanic rituals are doing all of those things. You don't know their name. I mean, we may know their, some of their names, like the Rothschilds and that group. But uh, we don't really know the face of them today because they're not the ones out front. 
But you know, you get down to the second level, and you certainly do know a lot of those people. And then, of course, and at the second level, we're dealing with hundreds of thousands, probably. And then the bottom level are other organizations. You see, under politics here on the left, I put some of the secret societies um, because really they're focusing almost exclusively on geopolitical events: who's going to be king, who's going to be president, what country's going to invade what country. And those types of things, but they are strictly speaking uh, secret societies, and we're probably dealing with over a million people, uh, people in that group. So um, it's right at 7:30, and uh, I know that's our stated time frame is 6 to 7:30. But I'll be glad uh, if anyone has questions and would like to uh, ask a question, we'd be happy to include that in the video. And if you need to slip out, by all means, we certainly understand. But who's got a question? Back here, is it on? Is it on at, is the, did you put the on button at the, on the bottom? Is it on at the uh, podium? If not, I'll just have to repeat the question. Eh, that's all right. Sorry, just say it loud and then I'll repeat it. So the question is, are all these secret societies in contact with each other or in competition with each other? First of all, there are literally thousands of secret societies and new ones even today. I found a new one that's just started in the last 10 years in Denver. And uh, you can sign up online. Um, I declined because uh, it was not anything I wanted to be a part of. But So there are thousands of them. These are just some of the more instrumental ones. They're not necessarily in contact with each other. Remember, they're not, let's put this chart back up, they're not the ones, uh, you know, in charge. They're a means to an end. They're a tool in the arsenal of the Luciferians. And if you need to make sure that some business owner, you know, requires all of his employees to get the vaccine, for example, uh, well, you just you use your connections through these secret societies, and first thing you know, the guy gets his marching orders and he does it, right? So, the, you know, they, they use them as a means to an end. So uh, there are overlap in the sense that someone could be a member of more than one, but they're not, there's not like an annual convention of secret societies where they all come together and strategize. They're all very separated and, and, and sort of pigeonholed for a particular purpose, you know. Good question. Someone else? Question or comment? Yeah. So you see there are some people that might uh, go against it and say, oh, I'm a member of a society or one of these, and we don't talk about those things, so your information is wrong. Do you find anything in your, in your research that you, know, you would combat that? You might say, oh, yeah, what about this? Or, you know, personal testimony is basically saying, well, since my group doesn't do that, that can't be true. So I'm not sure I understand the question. So you're saying there are people who are a member of it but are uninformed, and so they don't know what goes on at the top levels. Uh, and so, and your question was what? Their testimony would say, I'm part of Skull and Bones, for example, and we don't talk about those kind of things. So you know, take my testimony as the guide. Everything you found must be contrary to what my experience. Yeah, well, so liars lie. That's what liars do. Uh, Satan's a liar from the beginning. And uh, Skull and Bones, since you mentioned that one, it would be, I would be, I cannot conceive of someone who's in Skull of Bones, Skull and Bones, uh, 
not knowing what's really going on. It's a very exclusive, small, influential, again, multiple presidents and Supreme Court justices and people like that. Um, and we, we have two examples that I just showed of people when asked about it that basically just kind of nervously laughed, made a joke of it, and moved on, right? Uh, but I do think with some of the larger ones, like Freemasonry always comes up. You know, there are people that are in Freemasonry and they do a lot of heavy, heavy recruiting and they try to get, you know, young people to go in. They infiltrated the Southern Baptist Convention 100 years ago and it's huge in the Southern Baptist Convention, especially in the South. It is, there are whole churches that for 100 years have been dominated and controlled from secretly by the Freemasons. Um, but, uh, but again, I don't give much of a pass to those because, you know, it, just at the very rudimentary level, you know, taking an oath to an unseen higher power, I mean, that ought to send off alarm bells for even the most novel Christian, in my mind. Yeah. But... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, and that's not necessarily forbidding the taking of oaths unilaterally. He's just saying you should be so honest that you don't need to take an oath, is what he was saying. But he wasn't giving a mandate there not to take oaths. Uh, I mean, we, our military swears an oath to uphold the Constitution, for example, and that's not prohibited in Scripture. But, yeah, and so do politicians, yeah. So when I look at this chart, it seems very U.S. and Western European centered. What about the rest of the continents, Africa, Asia, et cetera, Middle East? Yeah, great question. I think you, the microphone picked it up. But uh, what about the rest of the world, since so much of what we've talked about is centered in the U.S.? Well, first of all, a couple of things. You know, the Trilateral Commission and the Council on Foreign Relations, the CFR there, they are both international. Trilateral is like, what, Japanese and in that realm, and then uh, CFR focuses more on Europe. Um, but this goes to show you the central role that the United States plays in the New World Order. Again, they didn't call it the New World for nothing. It was, it was by design. A lot of these go way, way back, long before uh, the establishment of the United States and the discovery of the continent. I mean, Satan's been alive and well for 6,000 years, and so when they discovered uh, North America, boy, they just couldn't wait to get over here and make it the beachhead. And that's the reason, you know, if you study, for example, The Hidden Faith of Our Founding Fathers is a, uh, a DVD documentary by Chris Pinto in which he exposes a lot of the beliefs that, that most Christians don't know that our Founding Fathers heard. And, he, and there's other documentaries out there that show the influence on even establishing the architecture of Washington, D.C. around satanic symbolism and so forth. I mean, I think we all understand the, the Washington Monument and uh, or the Capitol Dome, those types of things. So, um, so it is very much, uh, you know, U.S.-centric, but that's because it kind of is. I mean, it, this is a, a lot emanates from here, but the roots of it, go all the way back to the ancient times and the ancient Near East and of course we believe, if we believe the Bible, all the way back to Satan in the garden. So, yeah. Coming off of what Judy just said, I'd like to ask your opinion. Um, I was in a situation recently where we were asked to do the Pledge of Allegiance and I found that I, knowing what I know, 
I want your opinion, I would like your opinion, as a Christian, if really we should be pledging allegiance to this flag. I mean, when I look up what allegiance means, and I know what our country is involved with now, I found myself unable to do it. And I, I would just like your opinion on that. Yeah, so the question is basically given the trajectory of our nation and all that we know that's bad about our country right now, how do we reconcile, um, you know, basically, um, you know, supporting our country and patriotism and all that? So I can just give you my own personal anecdotes. Um, having been having studied this and written about it uh, for almost 15 years, like I said, Great Last Days Deception came out in 2012. That was kind of my first exposure expose of all this stuff. I went through a season where I was really uh, negative and really uh, just didn't like our country because of what I knew was going on behind the scenes. But it was it was kind of a journey and we spent a lot of time in Washington DC. I actually taught there at a school as an adjunct for four semesters and I would fly in and do these one-week courses for students. And But then we've also been up there for other speaking engagements and so forth. And it was my first trip with the kids to Arlington Cemetery that just I think the Lord used that to, for me personally, to rebuke me a little bit and remind me that, you know, there are, there is a great Christian heritage to this country in spite of the competing agendas of the, you know, New World Order types. Um, there are great God-fearing men and women who have made the ultimate sacrifice for freedoms. Um, I feel blessed to have grown up in a free country such as it is. I get it. I mean, there's a lot of freedoms that we're losing rapidly. Um, but I just, I just basically came to the point where when I say the Pledge of Allegiance or when I put a flag out like I did for July 4th, it's still hanging at our house, or 9-11. I mean, knowing the truth about 9-11, I mean, it was still, people really died. <laughs> And there were some really bad cats that were really involved in, 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 in that whole thing. But, but it, was, it still was, was my country and our country. And so I'm proud of our country and what it should stand for. And if the Lord tarries his coming, I'm praying and hoping that there will be enough patriots. Um, you know, what, what is the campaign that you guys are doing right now? Do, uh, we can't do nothing or something like that? You sent me the email because about it. Because we must. Because we must, you know. That kind of mentality. It's like, we got to do something. So I totally understand that when I, when I express my love for my country, it is not this blind, sort of inch-deep patriot. It's a real heartfelt love for all that's good about our country. And it's because of that that I get so angry about a lot of the real things that are happening behind the scenes. So that's just me. But believe me, I would not judge anyone who gets to the point where they say, I don't even, I can't even fly the flag anymore. I mean, I understand that where that's coming from. Yeah, somebody else. I think about people like Bonhoeffer, and I find myself increasingly questioning, how do we combat the evil? And what is our role as Christians? Great question. What, what is our role as Christians? How do we combat the evil? Um, I think we're seeing it come to a head 
right now in our country we're seeing, and by the way, all over the place too, there are a lot of uprisings and protests taking place in Australia and France and, and places. But in our country, you're seeing more and more people kind of waken, awakened to the fact that they've crossed a line, you know. When your government starts telling you, we are going to stick a needle in your arm and inject you with a very dangerous antigen and you have, you have no choice in the matter, that's a problem. People that aren't even believers, people that don't understand the biblical worldview, people that might otherwise be happy with anything uh, our country is doing are saying, wait just a minute. Wait, just, so I, I think, you know, we do what you can in your culture and in your, in your little setting, in your network. If that's standing up to a bunch of tyrannical school board members, you do it. If it's uh, standing up to your boss, uh, you know, you do it. I got another email today from uh, someone in Fresno, California at a church I've spoken at out there who used the Not By Works uh, exemption letter and got approval from their boss today said okay we accept it you don't have to get the vaccine so there are little victories um, you do what you can you can't we can't wave a wand and, and make it all go away overnight but we can we can save those certain people from getting on the trains we can save our families we can do little bits and hope that the Lord intervenes and that it doesn't go the way it looks like it's going and then you know we're going to be the ones that survived that's that's what we can do Somebody else. Do you have a follow-up question too, or do you have an opinion of um, when Bonhoeffer got involved in an assassination plot for Hitler? Because I've spent lots of time contemplating that, and I think that was, I think it was an honorable thing. Yeah, I um, I have not studied that probably to the extent that uh, I should be before commenting, but. I am aware that he was involved in that, and in my mind, um, killing mass murderers is, is an honorable thing. I mean, if, if some guy's going to be out there killing people, and you have the opportunity to stop it, you, you should. You know, if there's a sniper on the tower, you know, shooting innocent citizens below, and you are able to sneak up behind him and put an end to it, you should do that. It's called self-defense, right? So at its very basic level, without really understanding all that was involved and whether, whether the plot was indeed magnanimous or whatever, that'd be my philosophical answer. Anybody else? Okay, well, we uh, really appreciate your time and appreciate uh, great questions. I get a lot of comments from people that really appreciate the questions, even though usually it's only 10 or 15 minutes at the end of our sessions that they, uh, they really value that. So um, we will pick up again next Wednesday. I don't know what, cut, where, what direction I'm going to go topic-wise, but I want to remind you that on Sundays we do have our Bible study hour at 9 o'clock. We're going through uh, What Lies Ahead, my eschatology textbook, and this Sunday we're going to be talking about uh, some of the early things that will happen after the rapture in the tribulation period and leading into the tribulation period. And then Sundays at 10, we're doing a series on selected psalms, and I'm going to be uh, taking a look at Psalm 119 Sunday, but not the whole chapter. I'm just going to kind of give a summary of it and, and clue in on one uh, strophe, they call it, one uh, stanza, I guess is what we would call it. So anyway, thank you guys, and uh, have a great night, and we'll see you Sunday or next time.